Thank you, choir. If you have your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to the book of Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21 is where we are uh, this morning. Uh, I hope you brought your Bibles with you. You know, we take that for granted at times. If you, uh, you know, you may be brand new here to this church or brand new even to examining what Christianity is all about. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some for you. If you want to stop by the uh, Stop by the welcome lobby desk on your way out if you don't have a Bible and you would like to have one. It's nothing fancy. It's not a $100 leather-bound, genuine leather, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. But we would love to give one to you for you to have. And so if you don't have one, uh, please be sure to do that. But if you do have it, turn Acts chapter 21. Yeah, I'm currently using a rental Bible. You ever heard of that? It's not really a, literally a rental. It's a loaner, I guess, for myself because my Bible's in the shop. I uh, don't know if you've ever heard of having your Bible in the shop before, but back on Christmas Eve, I uh, set it on the side of the truck after our second Christmas Eve service and drove home excited about Christmas, forgetting that my Bible was on the side of the truck. And uh, so ever since then, it's been in the shop. So it's getting an overhaul, tune-up, those kind of things. So I expect when I get it back, I'll be preaching at least an hour and a half, probably, once, uh, once that comes back. So y'all might want to pray that it stays in the shop for a little bit longer. Acts chapter 21 uh, is where we are this morning looking at a message that I, I think could be very, very important for, for many of us this morning as we see the principle that's going to be uh, our focus this morning unfold out of this passage. We're going to look 17 verses out of Acts chapter 21. Something happened to me this week that uh, I can't recall ever happening to me ever before. I was uh, planning to have early breakfast with a buddy of mine, and uh, so gotten up early that morning, I believe it was on Thursday, and uh, jumped in the truck, and I took off for breakfast. Well, as I came through the three-way stop up here at Quarterman and uh, Johnny Mercer, the truck began to sputter, and uh, I knew exactly why it was sputtering, because it had been under E for a couple of days, and... um, you know, which, which, I mean, come on, let's be honest. If you live out here on the island, I mean, E, I mean, you, you got a good two weeks left because everything's right here close. And so it started sputtering and, uh, and then it just, uh, you know, it, I thought, well, I got I to gotta pull over. And so I pulled over to like a little side street that I could duck into. And as I turned in, well, it started running a little bit better for that next two and a half seconds. So I thought, I'm going to go for it. And so I turned it back around. Just as I pulled out onto Johnny Mercer, it just died. I mean, died. I'm trying to coast it with no power, no nothing, trying to coast it back off the road again. I got everything off except about the last five feet of the truck bed, of the back end of the truck. So I jump out. I'm already dressed, you know, for work and so I don't have my truck pushing clothes on. And so I start pushing the truck, try to get off the road. Well, it's hard for a little guy like me, you know, to push these big old trucks. And so thankfully, uh, a friend of mine uh, who comes here pulled off, you know, he saw me and uh, he pulled over and he jumped out. He was taking his son to, to school and he starts giving me a hand pushing this truck off the road. Some of you might have seen it off the road. So that wasn't my my own work. It was me and a friend of mine that did that great parking job, caddy corner, crooked off the road. Well, as we're walking to the truck, his truck, for him to drop me off at breakfast, I heard him say, you know, if you had one of these, that wouldn't have happened. <clears throat> and I looked down and he's pointing to his Georgia Tech sticker. <laughs> well, for a bulldog like myself, I was glad to be a Tech fan for that three-minute ride to breakfast. I was grateful for that. You know, it was, when I, when I began to think about it, that is just a, another example of the fact that we often come to intersections in our lives, don't we? And not, I'm not thinking of physical intersection. This is a cheesy application of a three-way stop. I'm thinking that, that for me, that particular day, the facts, that being a sputtering truck and a needle that was below empty, intersected with my thoughts that I could make it. And it was at that intersection that I had a crucial choice to make, where the facts intersected my thoughts, 
I had a choice to make, and I made the wrong choice, and thankfully, I didn't suffer at all. I was inconvenienced to a small degree, but I was able to just jump right back into the stream of the day and to move right on. But there are times that we all face intersections of our lives. An intersection, if you think about it, is very simple. It's just a, it's that point where two paths traveling opposite directions ultimately cross and then continue on in their opposite directions. That's all an intersection is. Two paths traveling different directions, the point where they meet, where they cross, where they intersect, and then continue in their opposite directions. For example, if you were to travel out I-95, you will come very shortly, if you turn off of I-16, you'll come to Highway 80. It was Highway 80. At that intersection, as you're sitting there in your vehicle, so to speak, I hope you don't sit long because you're on an interstate, but if you're sitting there at that interstate, uh, at that intersection of I-95 and Highway 80, depending on which direction you go, could take you worlds apart. If you stay on 95 and you continue north, you'll come to a place called the Woodstock Road Border Crossing in northern Maine. If you choose at that intersection, however, not to travel north, but to travel west on U.S. Highway 80, it will drop you off at Dallas, Texas up till 1973. would have taken you all the way to the west coast, San Diego, California. Just one small decision sitting there at that intersection, one small, seemingly insignificant decision can take you worlds apart. And there's some today, right where you sit, you're at an intersection just the same. That intersection could be numerous things. It could be something as insignificant as a purchase. And as you sit at the intersection asking, do we buy this or do we not? Do we make this purchase or do we not? Seemingly as so insignificant as a choice as that, that choice, depending on what it is, could take you two completely different directions. Some of you sit at the intersection of a career and you're asking yourself, hopefully, what does God want for me in regards to the course of the career that I travel in my life? And as you sit at that intersection, you may be at a place where you've been in a job for 20 years and things are stirring and you're really beginning to rethink things, or you may be fresh out of college and you're beginning to think, what is going to be the course of my life? And as you sit at that intersection called career, you're facing a decision that could take you abs- uh, hundreds, if not thousands of miles in either direction. And the, and the determining factor is, which way are you going to go? For some, you may be in a marriage and you're beginning to really wonder, what is it that I need to do in this marriage? Do I need to just stay in it for the long haul or do I need to cut and run? And the people that you talk to that have nothing to do with God or really desire what God thinks about the matter are telling you one thing and yet in your heart of hearts as you read scripture as a Christian, as you pray about it, it seems as though God just seems to be steering you a different direction and you're at that intersection. And the decision that you make, if you hang a left or a right, is going to take you worlds apart. And so I want us to look at a message this morning entitled, The Intersection of the Wills. And it's those instances in our lives when we face moments of decision where our will is in opposition to God's will. And the question is, what do we do? When we face that all-important intersection of the wills, how do we know which way to go and what choice will we make? Well, in Acts chapter 21, Paul is continuing in his journey And he's ultimately making his way towards Jerusalem. Just as a refresher, the reason he's going to Jerusalem is not to stay there. Paul has his sights set on Rome. He's wanting to get to Rome. The whole book of Romans is evidence of the fact that he made it there. (laughs) Well, Paul didn't want to just stay in Rome. A lot of times we fall short there. We say, Paul had his sights set on Rome. No, Paul, if you read elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul wanted to get beyond Rome. He wanted to get to Spain. 
because Paul was constantly pressing forward. His horizons were always moving just a little bit ahead of him. He wanted to go as far as God would allow him to take the gospel message to the whole entire literal world. That's where Paul was headed. But here in this context in Acts 21, he's headed towards Jerusalem. Well, he's traveling probably, I would say, with a couple of pretty heavy money bags. Because what he's done is, previous to this, if you look just a couple of chapters or so before, he has made a trip through uh, Macedonia, which for us today is, is Europe. And he's traveled through Macedonia. He's visited churches that he's already been to previously. And he's going to those churches, churches that in many cases didn't even have anything themselves, Second Corinthians 8 tells us. And he goes back through those churches, and he's collecting money. He's collecting a, a, an offering to take to Jerusalem because the Christians in Jerusalem were in the midst of a famine. They had nothing. And so, so Paul's doing what we often do. He is simply collecting and enabling people to be able to give to meet the need of another person. And so he's traveling to Jerusalem. He's got this offering with him, and he is dead set on arriving at Jerusalem. He's already running a little bit behind the schedule that he wanted, but he is absolutely dead set on getting there. And so chapter 21 continues that journey. What he does for the sake of time, I won't read all the verses there at the beginning, but Paul, uh, he hops a ship. It's, uh, the Bible doesn't call us this, but historians tell us it would have been a, a coasting ship. And he's on this ship that is a smaller vessel. It's designed to coast along the, you know, uh, along the coastal regions. It would hug the, 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 uh, the shoreline, so to speak. And he's on this smaller vessel traveling uh, city after city, on his way to Jerusalem. Verse 1 mentions a city called Kos. It's an interesting city. You've heard of the Hippocratic Oath, right? You've heard of that in the medical field. You've heard of Hippocrates. Well, Hippocrates founded the medical school that was in the city of Kos. And it was the foremost, the leading medical school in its day in the first century. So Paul sails past there. He's making his way towards, ultimately towards Jerusalem. It tells us he comes to a city called Patara, which is where he boards a larger vessel, a bigger ship, able to sail out into the open sea, and he is just flat booking it towards Jerusalem. Well, pick up with me in verse 4, and let's see what happens next. It says in verse 4, after having landed at a city called Tyre, it says that looking up the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. Uh, now, uh, when, when you read the Bible, hopefully you read it somewhat investigatively. You know everything there is true, but doesn't it help when we just kind of read a little bit between the lines? And, you know, I wonder, how did Paul look up these disciples? Right? He comes to the city of Tyre. He doesn't have a phone book. He doesn't have a phone. He doesn't have Facebook. He doesn't have internet access. He doesn't have any of those things. And yet it says he looked up the disciples there in the city of Tyre. That could not have been easy. And so I wonder if Paul didn't do this. This is just phenomenal to think about. Did Paul not go to people and say, hey, listen, Tyrenians or whoever they were called, uh, people of Tyre. Let me just describe to you the Lord that I serve, Jesus Christ. Let me just describe to you. He's, a, he's one who's humble. He's one who's unconditionally loving. He is one who serves to the uttermost. He lays out descriptions of Jesus. I wonder if Paul didn't say, are there any people in this city that look like that? I mean, let's just be honest. Oh yeah, there's some live over here. There's some back over the river there. There's some back over in that little area. There's some. Wouldn't it be great if people could just describe Christ and people would say, as they point to you, oh, there's one just like him right there. Oh, that'd be awesome, wouldn't it? You think about changing a culture, changing an island, changing a city, changing a neighborhood. It pretty much starts there. <laughs> and so Paul comes to Tyre, and it says that he looked up the disciples. He looked up the, the, the Christians that were there. These are not the 12 disciples, obviously. It's years beyond that. He's looking up the Christians that are there. And he stays for a week, verse 4, uh, ultimately tells us. 
It says they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. You, you may want to just put a little star or check mark or a circle, if you don't mind writing in your Bibles there, verse 4, because that's a significant verse. It is an intersection for Paul. It is an intersection in this way. Paul had his mind and his heart set on Jerusalem. He was dead set on getting to Jerusalem, already having collected the money for the saints, for the Christians that were there. He is dead set on making his way to Jerusalem. And yet here, in the midst of these Christians in the city of Tyre, the only thing he's hearing is they're telling him, don't go. Don't dare go to Jerusalem. And it's an intersection of the wills. Paul, heart set, dead set, mind focused, knowing this is where God is leading in the in the company of Christians that are telling him exactly the opposite thing. Well, as Paul continues on his journey, we find that the same thing is going to happen yet again. Look at what it says in verse 5. He says, When our days there were ended, we left and we started on our journey while they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city. And after kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. And then we went on board the ship, and they returned home again. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and after greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day. And on the next day we left, and we came to Caesarea, and entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, inspired by God, is giving us a lot of detail there. And it tells us there that Paul, as he continues his journey, comes to a city called Caesarea. This city, Caesarea, was the port of call for Jerusalem. It's 50 miles northwest of Jerusalem, but it was the port that the people in Jerusalem used. And so Paul lands at Caesarea. He has made a long journey. It's been a long way from Europe. And he's finally made it pretty much right back to the homeland. He is in Caesarea, 60 miles from Jerusalem. And it tells us there in that verse, in in verse 8, that he would stay in the house of Philip the Evangelist. Now that's interesting because if you remember, if you've stayed with a series now for the 21 years we've been in the book of Acts, if you've been with me here for this this whole journey, you remember the the name of Philip, right? Philip was back in Acts chapter 6. Remember the church in Jerusalem was having some issues, widows were being overlooked in food, the apostles said, hey, we need to continue teaching, but we need some guys that we need to select that are holy, that are filled with the Spirit, that are men of good reputation to help serve the widows their food so they don't get overlooked, and Philip was one of them. Acts chapter 8, you remember Philip, right? He's the one who goes out as an evangelist, shares the gospel with with a person from Ethiopia, The person from Ethiopia trusts Christ, probably takes that message back to Africa. (laughs) Philip was a, I mean, he's a big time player in the book of Acts. Just hadn't heard from him in a while. It's been 20 years since Acts chapter 8. And a lot has happened. Acts chapter 9 is when Paul comes to Christ. There's a lot that's gone on for 20 years. And so we see here in chapter 21, Philip comes on the scene again. There's been some things that have changed for Philip. He's married. He's got four kids now at least. So Brooks, how do you know that? Look at the next verse, verse 9. It says, now this man Philip had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. (laughs) Now that's an interesting word. Isn't this a Baptist church? (laughs) Prophetesses? We don't have any prophetesses here in this church. (laughs) That's hard to say, prophetesses. Prophetesses. So what's going on here? What is this talking about? Well, let me, let me shade because this, I'm not trying to overload you with a, with a lot of facts. These facts are important, but they do play into the, 
to the principle we're going to see here in just a second. What is a prophetess here in the New Testament? It's a bit different from a prophet in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you'd have guys like Isaiah, for example. They were prophets of God. When they spoke, they spoke the words of God. Whenever the prophet Isaiah would speak, it would be just the same. What we have recorded from the prophet Isaiah is Scripture. Whenever an Old Testament prophet would say, thus says the Lord, people would have to listen because it was the Lord speaking. It was God's word being proclaimed there. In the New Testament, that term prophet takes a little bit of a different shape. It would mean to proclaim truth, yes, in a sense, but it would also carry the connotation that when a prophet in the New Testament would speak, it would not necessarily be the words precisely inspired of God. It would be more of, I have a sense that this is what God wants me to say. It'd be the same as a pastor that stands in front of a congregation and says, I have a sense after having prayed and sought counsel and read scripture, this is where I sense God is leading us as a church. That's the way prophets operated in the New Testament. It doesn't mean, hey, what I'm about to tell you is the same as the book of Mark. This is inspired words, and so gather around, children, I'm about to speak, the pastor of the words of God. No, it doesn't mean that. You say, Brooks, prove that to me. Just just flip. Again, this this is going to play into what we're looking at. Look over to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, because what Paul is going to do here in 1 Corinthians 14, just kind of as a parenthesis here, he's going to give instruction to the church in Corinth. And he has a little something to say to the church at Corinth as to how to handle prophets in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 14, look down verse 29. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 29. He says, let two or three prophets speak. He's given instructions for worship, basically. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. Your translation may say, and let the others weigh what is said. (laughs) You never would have heard that in the Old Testament when Isaiah was speaking. Let's just let Brother Isaiah have a little word here, and then y'all just kind of judge what he has to say. No, no, no. This is Isaiah, the prophet of God, who is about to give us the word of God, and you will be wise to follow everything, he says. But the New Testament, a little different. The prophets would speak, they would proclaim the sense of where they feel like God was leading, but it was up to the people to weigh what was said and to choose whether or not it was of God. In fact, we even see an example of it right back in Acts chapter 21, verse 10. It says, as we were staying there for some days in Caesarea with Philip the evangelist, as we were staying there for some days, a prophet, there's the term, a prophet named Agabus, not the first time we've seen Agabus, he was back in chapter 13. A prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and he bound his own feet and hands. And he said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. That was a bold statement. You can bet there was no chitter-chatter going on in the room when this man's speaking. All right, he takes Paul's belt. Paul, give me a belt. Give me a belt. Give me a belt. He takes his belt, and he ties up his own hands. He ties up his own feet, and he says, the owner of this belt can expect the same. And then he gives a specific expectation he says it's the jews who will hand him over to the gentiles if we if this is old testament prophet isaiah 
he's going to nail that exactly right. Otherwise, you know the penalty for false prophets in the Old Testament. Death. Does this come to pass exactly the way he prophesied? Not exactly. In a general sense, yes, it did. But precisely, it did not. In fact, look forward a little bit to verse 30. I hope I'm not losing you here, but this is all so important. Verse 30. We jump ahead just a small length of time and it begins to unfold what Agabus had to say. It says that all the city was provoked and the people rushed together and taking hold of Paul, they, dr- they dragged him out of the temple and immediately the doors were shut. Verse 31 says, while they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort, the Roman Gentile cohort, that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Well, at once he took along some of his soldiers and centurions and he ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Well, then the commander came up, and he took hold of him. This commander, this Roman, Gentile, non-Jewish commander came up. He took hold of him, Paul, and he ordered him to be bound with two chains. Agabus would say it would be the Jews that would bind Paul, handing him to the Gentiles. But it was not the Jews. It was the Gentiles who bound Paul. You see, the prophet in the New Testament a little bit different than the prophet in the Old Testament. You make that prophecy in the Old Testament, it comes to pass that way, you lose your life. Prophecy in the New Testament, just a little difference. Proclaiming and it's sharing just a sense of where one feels God is leading. That's why Paul says, weigh what they say. And so this begins to unfold, back, back to chapter 21. This begins to unfold a little bit. Look at verse 12. It says, when we had heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him, begging Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. This is the second time. The second time that Paul, knowing the will of God, sees that will intersect with the loving, caring, but misguided words from his fellow believers was Paul in sin going to Jerusalem there's no evidence to to show us that he was in sin Paul had already demonstrated a sensitivity to the spirits leading in his life there were times when God would close the door Paul would say door closed I'm going this way Paul was already proven to be a man sensitive to God's leading in his life there is nowhere in this text nowhere elsewhere in the in the New Testament that gives us any indication that Paul was in any way sinful by pressing on to Jerusalem against the will of these people that spoke into his life nothing that shows us that there is no evidence anywhere in the New Testament that Paul was out of God's will by traveling to Jerusalem and then ultimately on to to Rome there was no evidence whatsoever so we can't assume that he was wrong by going go, by going there what we have to assume then is that when he faced the intersection of the wills where he knew what God wanted for him yet he was getting uh, uh, advice to the contrary he made a very simple decision look at what he did verse 13 or verse 12 Verse 12, it says, they begged him not to go to Jerusalem. Verse 13, then Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking the will of the Lord be done. 
And after these days, we got ready and we started on our way to Jerusalem. Well, some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Nason of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to lodge. And after we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. When we see the close of that passage right there, what do we find that Paul did? We find that he was not discouraged, he was not frustrated by, and he was not derailed by opposing uh, uh, viewpoints. He knew the will of God and he followed it at the intersection of the wills. So what's the principle? It's so simple, it's going to blow you away. At your intersection of the wills, follow God. (laughs) You think, okay, you're you're getting paid to put together these sermons, and that's all we get? (laughs) At your intersection of the wills, follow God? That's exactly right. There's no reason to overthink it. There's no reason to look for signs in the sky. There's no reason to, I'm going to turn on the Christian radio station, and whatever song's on, maybe that's going to be a sign that I got. No, 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 no. You say, Brooks, why is it that, that simple? Let me, let me just remind you of something that you already know. God loves you so greatly that he is willing and able to show you the steps that he wants you to take as you walk with him. He's already made that clear. He's given you a book called the Bible with 66 smaller books that throughout it give the majority of his will for your life. And in those areas where it's not spoken to clearly, like should I take this job or should I not? Should I date this guy or should I not? Should I move to that city? or should... Those areas, as you seek God in his heart and you have no will but his and you pray and you seek godly counsel and you're allowing God to point out his way, listen, he will show you his will in his time. Why? Because he gets an awful lot of glory when his people walk in obedience to his will. And when you take a step of obedience into his will, what that shows people around you is it shows you the glory of God because sometimes that step will be so clear but so opposed to the way of the world. And as you step into his will and as you walk in obedience and as you at the intersection of the wills of your life, as you just simply choose to follow him, he's going to get glory. And so why would he not make his will known to us in his perfect timing? And for Paul, when he came to this intersection, he's hearing everything but he chooses to follow God. So where's the intersection of the will in your life this morning? Where is that intersection? Is it, is it in the area of marriage? I'll tell you this. Uh, let, let me, so we, again, we already know this. But if we want to take a step outside the will of God, it is not hard to find people that will gladly support that choice. You know, I mean, if I make a decision, that's it. I'm done with my marriage. I'm out of here. I'm tired of this whole pastoring thing. I'm just going to move off somewhere and kind of live my own life and start my own life because I'm not happy and none of this stuff. No, that's true, by the way, using his illustration. And don't put it on Facebook. And if I, you know, I'm, I'm tired of all this. And this is what I'm going to do. You know what? I can go out on the street corner, so to speak, and I can find 20 people in an instant that will say, that's exactly what you need to do, man. And at the intersection of the will, you got to be careful who you follow because it just might take you worlds away from where you intended. Ask the prodigal son. How insignificant was the statement, Father, give me what is rightfully mine. And it was that one simple statement, seemingly as insignificant as what he ate for breakfast that day. Father, give me what is rightfully mine that launched him on a journey out of the will of God and to the deepest point of his life. And for some of you today, that's where you are.
Maybe for you it's some vice in your life. Maybe it's some addiction. Maybe it's some, uh, I don't know, some habit, something that is your pet sin. And it feels so good because it gives you a sense of happiness or security or release. It's some, somewhat of a soothe to your life, though when it wears off, you're hurting even more deeply than before. And it's at that intersection that people will say, if it works for you, but God's got better. And you've got to decide, which way am I going to go? I can almost envision for some this morning, you're sitting at the intersection, and you're thinking, which way am I going to go? And you know what God's Word says at that intersection of your life? And you know what is right, and you know what is best, and you know what will honor God. But as you sit there at the intersection, you've been pausing for a while in silence. You've turned on the blinker. Can you hear it clicking? Blink, 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 blink. Do I stay? Blink, blink. Do I leave? Blink, blink, blink. Do I do it? Blink, blink, blink. Do I not? Blink. And with your hands on the wheel, you start the turn. And I can only hope for you that as the wheel turns and as your life sets out on a course that will end in a destination, that that choice will end up deep in the will of God. And so at the intersections of your life, just follow God. Let's pray. Lord, who's to say that there aren't some decisions being made in these next 24 hours that could put a person, a family, on a course that will take them so far away from you? Lord, this is your shot across the bow. This is the warning sign. This is the alarm. This is the horn blast. It beckons to the hearts of those who sit at that intersection at this moment that says, follow God. Regardless of what your friends say, regardless of what, what you even want, do what you know will honor God and follow Him. Lord, I pray for wisdom in the lives of each of us. Lord, we don't want to be that person who made the wrong turn. We know that prodigals are born out of wrong choices to the exclusion of you at the intersections of our lives, and we don't want to be that. So God, I pray for those sitting at the intersection wondering which way to turn the wheel. I pray that against everything they hear, perhaps, they'll follow you. Lord, we know that the biggest intersection that we'll ever face is the one in regards to who will be the master of our lives. I'm sure there are some this morning who sit there and they know the cost of sin. They know that it separates them from you because they already feel that distance in their lives. But Lord, in these recent days, something has begun to stir. Maybe even during this message that life can't continue the way it is, that they need a master and a savior, they need forgiveness, they need to be right with you. And the only one who can bring that is Jesus Christ. 
And at the greatest intersection they'll ever face, the only decision they'll make that will last forever, they have to choose. Will they continue to be the Lord of their own life? Or will they turn everything over to Christ? Receiving not only He, but also His forgiveness as well. And Lord, we thank You that the way we make that choice is to simply pray and to invite Jesus, God Himself, who died in our, in our place on the cross, who rose again. We just simply invite Him to come in, to forgive us, and to take over. It's childlike faith, and that's what you look for. And so, Father, I pray for those today that don't know you, that at that intersection they'll choose to receive Jesus today. Bless now these decisions we ask. Lord, be honored in the decisions that we make. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.